So, Eric, why don't you open for us? Yes, sir. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for Ray and just how you work in his life and are working in this, equip him, train him to, to pour into us, Lord. And so we have to be given to us, Lord. We know it's by your grace. It's, it is a gift from you, the loser. So we pray, God, that you continue to guide him and speak through him as he's with us and as we open your word. We pray for our fellow class members who are sick, who are out, and keep them safe. Um, those their own way that you can help them arrive safely with no accidents, no problems. And for those who are out, we bring healing to them and their families so that they can. We just thank you for, for seeing your plan for the ages in your word and how that encourages us, how it motivates us, how it challenges us, and how it, it, it humbles us, Lord, to know that you've included us um, in this and given us an opportunity. So I just pray that this will stir in our hearts, motivate us to share with our fellow men, to be ready to give an account all time for the hope that we in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today I intend to try to get into three different areas. I'd like to conclude our little study that we looked at last week on the church. And then there's another area, another group that sometimes is neglected when we talk about eschatology. But there are actually lots of passages that deal with Gentiles in eschatology. There's a whole program that God has for them. So we'll look at that. And thirdly, when we complete both of those, we want to start our study on the tribulation, looking at specific areas, specific important areas of eschatology. So let's conclude our look at the church. Maybe an introduction Actually, a long introduction where we talked about the ages and how God is using different entities over time to accomplish a broader overall goal. And at the heart of that is the nation of Israel. We, as members of the church, oftentimes think more in terms of the church, but the church is part of Jewish eschatology. I've been trying to stress that aspect. So everything that we've dealt with with the church is with respect to those major issues of Jewish eschatology. So we looked at the church before the tribulation, the tribulation being Jewish, and there's some things related to it. And we left off last time by looking at the church during the tribulation, and we mentioned that the church is not on earth, but God is doing something with the body of Christ And the main thing that we talked about dealing with the church is, it appears, now we don't have a chronological order, but we have the Bema judgment that seems to be the next event after the rapture, or coinciding with it, or part of it. It's not clear in scripture, but I think this is a very, very important concept, even apart from eschatology. It has a lot of practical Usage, I guess you could say, and benefit for the body of Christ. I think it's sometimes a neglected area, so I'd like to take a little bit of a look at it. We left off last time by kind of giving you a summary of this, the place of where the Bema takes place, probably the heavenlies. Didn't say specifically, but more than likely. Time frame, more than likely again after the rapture, perhaps immediately after. The judge, if you want to look at it as a judgment, and it's translated the judgment seat, 
Bema, two words to translate one little, four little word. Jesus is the judge, so we stand and are evaluated before him. Subjects are believers, and more specifically, we should say the church. The church is the subject of the uh, Bema. It's all on the basis of grace. Everything's on the basis of grace. It's not that we earn these rewards. These are above and beyond what God has promised the body of Christ. Well, these are part of what he's promised, but they're not based on ultimately what we do, even though the evaluation takes that into account. So it's on the basis of grace. And we said that the purpose of the Bema, I went into an explanation mentioning that it has nothing to do with heaven and hell, has nothing to do with final judgment, has nothing to do with eternal life, but it has everything to do primarily with rewards. And the rewards will probably be realized during the millennial kingdom. So that's where we left off, and let's pick up by looking closer at this concept of rewards. And you might turn to 1 Corinthians 3, that's probably the central passage, or at least the most detailed passage. But there's other passages as well. One of them is in the same context, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. In fact, that's one we'll want to look at. And then we'll move into chapter 3 and be good to look at Matthew because that's what Jesus predicts and promises. And then another passage by Paul in Ephesians 6, 8. Mark, do you want to start us off? Uh, read uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor, his own labor. Now, who's he talking about in this context? This is Paul, obviously. If you are familiar with 1 Corinthians, this almost takes you back to chapter 1 and other passages in there. Do you remember one of the main issues, one of the main problems in the church at Corinth? Yeah, divisions, exactly. Some were following Apollos, some were following Paul, and some were more spiritual, they're following Christ, you know, that sort of thing. But there were divisions in the church. So he's kind of giving a perspective. How do these all fit together? And he already has explained it, but now he makes a little comment in verse 8, alluding to one plants, another one does another ministry, but we all work together. In other words, all the, the leaders of the first century, they're not in opposition or they're not competing for people's allegiance. They're all under one function, one ministry. But notice a little phrase in there. Those that minister, and here's a verse that indicates reward in relationship to ministry. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And he's referring to those, Apollos himself, etc. Now skip down, well, we might as well read verse 9. Jim, read 9 and go into verse 10 there. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, stop there, and then I'll get you, let you get into 10. Now he's going to use an analogy of a building or a temple, kind of like a contractor, if you will, building something of beauty, a, a temple, and he begins in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another building upon it, 
but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So the analogy here is Paul has laid the foundation to this structure. So he views his place as one that lays foundations. Others are going to build on that. And in the imagery and the analogy, he's an evangelist primarily. He, he's a missionary. He's one that not only plants churches, brings people to Christ, and, and then plants churches, and then somebody comes after him. He goes to the next city, the next location, and someone with different gifts now begins to nurture and build on that foundation. That's the imagery that he's using. Sheila, do you want to read uh, verse 11? For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. Okay, that's the foundation. Relationship or salvation in Jesus Christ. Vivian, verse 12. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Keep reading since we're in the middle of the sentence. Each man's work will become evident, but the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So now we're building on it. And at a construction site, you'll see stacks of building materials. If it's a steel structure, you might see all these girders. Or if it's a brick building, you'll see piles of bricks, etc., bags of concrete. And that's the imagery that he's using in verse 12 there. So gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, or stubble. Now, also the imagery, they would have been familiar with the temple itself, which had lots of gold and lots of precious stones and expensive things. But it would also have cedar and other materials built into it. So he's giving this imagery, and in verse 13, there's going to be an evaluation. There's going to be a building inspector that's going to come along and evaluate the quality of the material, the quality of the workmanship. Eric, you want to do 14? If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Okay, there it is. He will receive a reward. In other words, if the quality is of such a nature that it remains, the building inspector is going to light a match to it, see what remains. And obviously, gold, silver, precious stones remain, whereas other perishables will, will burn up. So that's the imagery. The imagery is we're going to stand before the Lord and something is going to be either permanent or something's going to be temporary. And the concept of rewards is in view here. And we'll expand upon that. And then verse 15, do you want to do that one, Mark? If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So there's the possibility of suffering loss, reward and loss. That's the issue at the Bema. And there's lots of passages. In fact, let's talk about this concept of rewards. You want to do Matthew 16 and 27? Uh, oh, notice on 1 Corinthians 3.14 that the work that it says is built upon it. It's built upon the foundation of Christ. Yes. What qualifies it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what qualifies it. Yes. Right. On the foundation. Proper foundation. And Sheila, do you want to do Ephesians sixteen twenty seven? And by the way, there are there are many of these passages. I'm just giving you some of the clearer and ones that stand out most. Jim. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Okay, this is Jesus himself. And if you remember, what's the context of chapter 16? This is the first place in all of the Bible that this mystery is revealed. The mystery of what? That he'll be killed. Well, he does refer to that, but the church. He's talking about the church. And in that... Mm-hmm. I will build my church. And it's in that context that verse 27, he's talking about repaying every man according to his works. Now, it's not as clear as some other passages, but here's a passage where Jesus predicts reward and potential loss of reward. You got six, eight, Sheila? Knowing that whatever good as he will receive the same from what he is a slave. Receive from the Lord. Now, this has nothing... If you study the context, it has nothing to do with salvation. This is above and beyond salvation. Another verse, if you want it, is Colossians 3, 23-24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. In other words, we're all involved in some activity, some involvement. But at the heart of everything we do, it should be as for the Lord rather than for men. And this is whether it's on the job or whether... It's in the neighborhood or whatever. And then verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So at the heart here is ultimately we're serving the Lord. And it's a matter of whether we're doing it with the right spirit, with the right attitude or not. So there's another reward passage. Another word, another image that is used, Paul uses this image of building upon or or building a structure on something, on a foundation. Another image are crowns. And these are drawn from a common site at Corinth and other locations, but particularly Corinth and Athens. Athletic games where athletes were rewarded for their competition. If they won, they would receive a crown usually a wreath of some sort. And there are several references to crowns, so that's the imagery. Now, there are two words for crowns. One of them is diadema. That's what royalty or positions of authority, people would wear a crown. But there's also these others that are more related to performance, like in athletic games, Stephanos. And there are several usages of that. One of them is 2 Timothy 4, 8. Vivian, you want to pick that one up. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not to not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearance. So Paul, remember this is his last letter, 2 Timothy, he writes this probably within months of his death and he has served the Lord faithfully, three missionary journeys and a lot of other ministry And what does he anticipate? He anticipates reward for that faithful ministry that he's carried out. And obviously this is the last chapter as well. So he's anticipating reward. This is Paul. So that word is Stephanos. Stephanos. Mm -hmm. And there are others. And we won't look up these, but you can jot them down. There's a reference to an imperishable crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25. And these are just some of them. In fact, you can do a word study on Stephanus and come up with several other passages as well. Secondly, believers in terms of the relationship to Paul in Philippians 4 1. 
And 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, he refers to the believers as his crown. In other words, they are a reward the Lord has given. In other words, the salvation is a result of him presenting the gospel. And their lives, they're a joy to him and a crown is, is how he phrases it in Philippians 4. In fact, why don't somebody look up Philippians 4? That's a good one. Where are we? Eric, look that one up. And while Eric's looking up that one, there's also for service. That's the one that we just looked at. That we just read 2 Timothy 4, 8, and that one was particularly Paul. There's others as well. There's a crown for perseverance, Revelation 2, 10. And there's others in terms of suffering as well. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about persecution, and he uses the word reward. He doesn't use the word crown, but there's a crown, if you will, for perseverance. There's also in 1 Peter 5, 4, where Peter is encouraging the elders to shepherd the flock. And in that context, for faithful shepherding, there's a crown associated with it as well. Okay, you got Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. There you go. And he's talking about the Philippians. They are his joy and crown. And in a sense, all of eternity, he's going to benefit from the earthly ministry that he poured into these people's lives. There's going to be not only ongoing fellowship, but there's going to be enrichment. They're a crown, something of a reward. So it comes in the form of those that we minister to as well. But even on earth, they're his joy as he reflects upon their faithfulness and their service as well. And there's other verses. Now, let's look this one up. Revelation 4.10. Let's get that one, Mark. And this is another indication that these are graciously given because when everything is said and done, and I believe the church is in view in Revelation chapter 4, it's a heavenly scene. It's right after chapter 3, not just numerically, but in terms of the chronology of how God is working. Revelation does not mention the rapture but it appears that the rapture would take place and then we're in a heavenly scene. And that's how I picture chapters 4 and 5. didn't specifically call out the church, so it may include Old Testament saints as well, but there are believers before that throne, and notice what they do in 4.10. Got that one, Mark? The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. These 24 elders probably are representatives of the church. And they cast their crowns before the one on the throne, recognizing that really he's the one that received the glory and honor of these crowns. So the concept of crowns, the word rewards is used. The word for crowns as an image is used. There's another word sometimes referring to an inheritance. I think it's a reference to rewards. An example of that, uh, Jim, do you want to look up Colossians 3.24? And Vivian, you want to do 1 Peter 1.4? And I'll have Sheila do Revelation 3.21. Colossians 3.24. And by the way, I think the... 
the uh, allusion here, the more common word in the Old Testament for the Jewish people is the word inheritance. And the inheritance in the Old Testament primarily before they enter the land it involves the land, and then after they're in the land, it looks even beyond the land. So I think Israel, there's the concept of rewards even in Israel. And it's usually a word associated with inheritance or heirs. And in this case, we have a New Testament passage. This would appeal to a Jewish mindset, which was prominent in the first century. I mean, even thinking of the passage where Jesus is talking about you know, praying when you do it in secret, mm-hmm. you know, because like they do it for public, they're going to receive their there, Yeah, exactly. Paid in full, right there. <laughs> So they lose the reward, the eternal reward. Yeah, that's in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Jim? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Okay, notice the association of reward and inheritance there. And there's other verses, for example, 1 Peter 1, 4. You have that one? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not be away, reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven. All of these words, I think, are associated with the concept of rewards. The actual word rewards is used, crowns, inheritance. But there's also not only several others, by the way, and if you do a word study, just look up inheritance, you'll find others as well. But there's also a promise of reigning. I think this is another way that the rewards are manifested in that we actually reign. And not only reign, but part of reigning is judging. And we'll look at that passage later on. But for now, 321. Sheila? To him who overcomes, grant to sit with me as I also overcame and sat down with the throne. A promise to sit on a throne along with Christ. And when he rules in the millennial kingdom, I think that's when uh, the reigning takes place. So I think these words and these concepts are all associated with the reward. They're not associated with salvation. They're associated with the concept of reward above and beyond eternal life. So that's what we receive at the Bema. And the basis of it is faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Eric, why don't you look that one up? And it's good to look at 2 John 8. You want to do that one, Mark? 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Jim. Here's one we don't like, but is in there. Sheila, James 1.12. We talked about Matthew 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 9.17-18, Vivian. And we looked at the 1 Peter 5 verse. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Okay, the same image here. Image of the games. Keep going. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This Christian life is like a competition. requires faithful diligence in executing the Christian life. And it's, we look forward to our reward, verse 25. There's also the possibility of loss, and there's other passages as well. You got that one, uh, Mark? Second John 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Full reward. And I think lack of faithfulness, which I think the majority of the church today 
is in that situation, there are very few believers that truly walk with the Lord, unfortunately. This is what makes this a very practical teaching, because it touches on how we live today. How we live now, day by day, moment by moment, in everyday situations, has ramifications, at least in the Millennial Kingdom, if not even beyond that. Very practical. And First Thessalonians 2.19, Jim. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Okay, that's similar to that other passage that we read. The result of the evangelism of Paul, in this case, becomes his crown. First Thessalonians 2.19. James 1.12, persecution... Blessed is the man who endures, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life the Lord promised those who love Okay, when he is approved or tested, could be translated that way, he will receive the crown of what? Life? Okay, so fullness of life, a crown, additional life. And Matthew 5.12, we've talked about it. And 1 Corinthians 9.17-18, Vivian. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Okay, that stewardship is his ministry that he has amongst the Corinthians, and if he does it with the right attitude, he has a reward. But then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Great. So he does it without charge. That's why I don't take any money for ministry. I want reward future. I don't want your measly dollars. <laughs> And then we looked at 1 Peter 5, 4. That's leadership or shepherding, if you will. So this is the basis upon which the rewards are given and the time of evaluation at the Bema, based on this criteria, there will be rewards. Sheila. And I'm sure you said this, but your, your reason for saying that this is a replacement of that discussion as it, it's... Is there more specific um, reference that it is Mojito? There's only a few passages like the one that you read in Revelation 3.21 that specifically deals with reigning. So there's not a lot of passages. It's more a theological conclusion. It makes more sense. I can't imagine suffering loss in heaven. So theologically it makes more sense. Because there's lots of passages that indicate that you may suffer loss in the millennial kingdom. A lot of the parables that Jesus issues, Matthew 24, 25. Parable of the talents. Yeah, parable of the talents, exactly, 25. And and there's others as well. So it seems to indicate that during at least the millennial kingdom, there's the possibility of losing reward. And it makes sense that after that, everything is kind of equalized in, in the eternal state Everybody's on the same level. No loss. Everything's just perfection. Do the other views that wouldn't um, accept the millennium find the same passages and end it to heaven or just do more to earth? Most, uh, no, most other views either mix up the millennial kingdom with eternity and heaven and see the millennial kingdom as another word for heaven or eternity. So they would see, if they even emphasize these at all, they would see these experienced in heaven, eternity. Those that see the kingdom on earth, I'm not sure how they 
how they spiritualize it. I can't remember how they would. But it's but, interesting because growing up, like, there's a lot of emphasis on good works. Rewards oh, okay. For, yeah. You know, to this day, saying right. I'm working at that there were, and, and so much emphasis on current suffering for the benefit of just so foreign, foreign to them. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the same, and if I remember right, I think it's almost all mixed up with salvation. In other words, yeah. there's no distinction made between salvation and reward. And well, then there's that whole praying out with people and yeah, and purgatory. Yeah, it gets all gets all messed mixed yeah. up and messed up. Yeah. It, it seemed, you know, even thinking about that, that the idea of grace is so important. It's only by His grace that we can do anything, even have the will to do. Be faithful, or exactly. You know, so I mean, right? Because you know, if we get to, to the Millennium Kingdom, and Mark has a, more rewards than me. I'm going to feel like, oh, wow, I didn't do enough. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a sense of competition, which just seems totally foreign to to. It just seems like that leads into sinful thinking. Here. Yeah. So, but remember, you'll be apart from that sinful thinking. You'll right, be in a resurrected body, and you'll be. Uh, but even now, it's even uh, you'll praise God. Praise God that right. Mark has this great reward. Praise God that I've got this reward. And I don't know whether there'll be something that we don't even make a comparison. The jealousy is removed. <laughs> That's right. No but jealousy. I mean, just, in, our, in this side of the Millennium Kingdom, where yeah. we're, it's hard to think that way. So That's right. I just show myself at least this is grace. <laughs> exactly. It'll be the way you want it, and that's fine with me. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the personal aspect comes in, because he knows what he's given us. And he's given some more responsibility than others. More or more, Some are more responsible for faithfulness, those that are in positions of leadership. So, that's the basis of the rewards. Very practical. And I think they're intended to be motivations. In other words, it's important how I live. It's important that I faithfully live for Christ. It's important that I'm involved in evangelism. It's important, not that I'm trying to earn anything because it's on the basis of grace, but to realize that there's going to be evaluation and there's a possibility of loss, but there's also uh, the the greatness of reward. And even if I suffer and I'm faithful in the midst of that, there's reward for that. And certainly there's reward for ministry. Leadership would be a subset of ministry there. Seems like it gives us good motivation to where, okay, I've got time as a gift that God has given to me, and I can use it however I want to. But now that I know this, I'm going to take this time and use it this way. Exactly. I could use it this way. So in in essence, I am making a choice. Absolutely. And the negative is the possibility that a lot of the things that we do is just going to be burned up and evaporate, if you will, Uh, the wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, we can do a lot of good things. I mean, we can be the best philanthropists, but we're doing it for other motives than for glorifying God. All that's burnt up. Okay? So that's the concept of rewards. Now, let's talk about saints in the tribulation. We just talked about saints outside of the tribulation, the body of Christ, and outside of the earth or in the heavenly realms. But we need to acknowledge that there are saints that are described that are in the tribulation, and we make a distinction. Some of the views, like a mid-tribulation view, or the pre-wrath view, or the post-tribulational view, see these saints on earth, and they see the body of Christ 
going through the tribulation. We make a distinction, or at least I do. I don't want to speak for you all. <laughs> the church, I believe, is gone because we just discussed the rapture. And when we looked at the views, I gave you reasons why the evidence seems to support that the, the rapture is pre-tribulation. We also see, and we've seen when we talked about Israel, we looked at Revelation 7, 9, and that indicates that not only is there going to be a great revival amongst Jewish people, but verse 9, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So there's going to be a tremendous worldwide revival during that tribulation. We would make the distinction, they are not members of the church. They're never described as members of the body or the church. They're described as saints. Old Testament believers are also referred to as saints. The body of Christ, the church, is a unique entity. I think we've tried to emphasize that, at least in our introduction there. So they're pre-church period saints, church period saints, and then tribulation saints. Exactly. Three different groups, exactly. So there are saints that do live during the tribulation, but they're not part of the church. Also, we know that many of them will die. Many of them will be martyrs. And a picture of that is Revelation 6, 9 through 11. These are before the throne, and they're identified. They're the ones that come out of this period of time, this, this tribulation period. So they will suffer. It'll be a, a difficult time to stand up for Christ. Many will be martyred amongst that worldwide revival. But what about people that are sitting in the pews that have never trusted in Christ? What happens to them? Are they raptured? They're on the rolls of the church. Okay, we talk when we speak of the church biblically, we're talking about a spiritual organism, a spiritual entity. So, during that period of time, the apostate church will enter into the tribulation period. So, a lot of church people will be living in the tribulation, but they are not members of the spiritual body of Christ that is raised, that is resurrected. Why do you call it apostate church? Well, because that's probably the best description of those. In other words... They're apostate. They're not believers. What do you think there's going to be an organization? Well, there probably will be. There's probably an ecumenical organization. An assembly, mm -hmm. so to speak? So to speak, yeah. But they'll know the truth. will have received it. Some of yeah. them. Some of them. Some of them. Some of them. Oh, probably I try mean, to explain yeah. yeah. As compared to people who be. Right. Just yeah. The reason I use the word church here is because I'm, I'm talking about those that are part of Organization. The organized church here at this time, they will go into that period of time and they will still think, well, I'm still Methodist. I'm still Presbyterian. Oh, I see. I'm still Baptist. You don't have any of those here, do you? No, of no. course not. Of course not. <laughs> to me, to me, that interprets this way. In my own study of Christianity, there is religion and there is the church, mm -hmm. the church age. And I classify, if they're unbelievers, they're religious. Every religion in the world, except believers in Jesus Christ, are the church. And, I mean, there's the church and there's religion yep. right now. Right. And I think that, to, in my mind, that to me means apostate religious people in the tribulation. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would... Well, and you see that, that, I mean, the... 
The evangelicals say, well, the Catholics are the apostate church. The Catholics say, well, the Orthodox are the apostate church. And the Orthodox say, well, both of those are the apostate church. So they, right. they'll still be going on after the, the real Absolutely. church is gone. Absolutely. Although there'll be a uniting, yeah. there'll be a uniting during the tribulation. That's made clear. There's going to be a lot of spirituality during that time. But a lot of it is deception and, and false doctrine. Another way of describing what you're talking about, Mark, is... The universal church is made up of only born-again true believers. Universal church. From whatever denomination and some non-denominations and some that are outside of even organized denominations. So that's the universal church. Every local church, well I shouldn't say every, but most local churches have a combination. They have wheat and tares. They have those that are genuinely born again that are members of the universal church and there's others that are unconverted and are there for whatever reason social or whatever those that have not been born again will go into the tribulation mm-hmm. they, they become believers they become saints right? they become saints mm-hmm. but just not part of the universal church correct they missed that vote. they missed it right so they, the apostate church, will join in this ecumenical movement of the Antichrist. And I think a vivid passage that speaks of even miracles that will be performed is Revelation 13, 4 through 8. And somewhere in there, that church will be destroyed, probably by Antichrist, And a vivid picture of that is Revelation 17. I interpret mystery Babylon as this not only apostate church, but probably a uniting, which is hard to conceive of today, but probably a uniting of things like Islam. Somehow, I don't know. But at least all of the religious elements, there's going to be a unified what do we want to call it? Uh, we don't want to call it a church, but a unified entity. And it appears that Antichrist will destroy that, or at least it will be destroyed when Mystery Babylon is destroyed. Now, traditionally, and in fact, the Reformers, they interpreted Revelation 17 and 18 as referring to, as Mystery Babylon referring to the Roman Catholic Church. I think that's too limited yet. Way too limited. It's going to include all of the Protestant liberal denominations as well and go beyond that. It's going to include New Age. It's going to include probably Islam as well. There's going to be a unified one world religion. That's the whole thrust of Revelation 13. And then it's categorized, I think, under the idea of mystery Babylon in Revelation 17. And 17 and 18 is the destruction of the totality of Babylon that includes the religious element. We'll talk some more about that later when we talk about tribulation. So that's the church during the tribulation. The true church is in heaven or in a heavenly state, resurrected state. And the apostate church, you might say, is on earth. And then there'll be a whole new group of saints genuine saints that are raised up during that period of time. Then after the tribulation, there's a lot that we need to talk about there. Is it fair on your outline here under church during the tribulation, which is what we're talking about now, to say that point A and point B, point A is believers who are in what you earlier called last week eternity, 
Yes. In, in B, it's actually on the earth. Is yes. That fair to say? Yeah. That's the two categories there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Revelation nineteen fourteen, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, returning with Christ. This is at the very end of this period called tribulation, when Christ returns. The prior verses refer to the second coming, and when Christ returns, he ends this tribulation period. And then 14, the armies that probably include, may even include angelic creatures, but would include most certainly believers during the church age. We will return with him. We are with him at the Bema, probably. We return with him, and we're clothed in fine linen. That's imagery of salvation or right standing, white and clean, and we follow him on white horses. So we come to reign. We come to rule. And that leads to the marriage supper, and I think this takes place at the return of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't turned, let's look at Revelation 19, a quick look at it. In fact, I've got it on the screen here. 19, 7 through 10, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So what is this marriage of the Lamb? This is the only reference to the church without using the word ecclesia in the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 18. The marriage of the Lamb, marriage supper of the Lamb, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the bride, that's the church. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself and find linen bright and clean, right standing. It's a picture of relationship. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, there's ministry, there's faithfulness. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So there's the reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what it appears, we have some of the parables that refer, I think, to the same occasion. There's going to be a feast. And the parables associate that feast with the millennial kingdom. And in a sense, we might even think of the millennial kingdom as this great supper that we'll partake of, this great marriage supper where we are in relationship with with Jesus Christ. Now, in a Jewish wedding, there were three major elements. The first was betrothal. That betrothal period was legally binding. The couple entered into a marriage contract, and they were legally bound to one another. But the betrothal was for preparation. The two, the man and the woman, would prepare themselves to live together, but they would not live together during the betrothal. The preparation of the woman would involve learning skills to become a good wife, food preparation, clothing, raising children, all the aspects that she's responsible for. Similarly, the man would prepare, sharpen his skills that he's already developed for making a living and providing and doing all the things that the husband was to provide. So they do those things in preparation, and they're committed to one another, and now they're planning in terms of a couple. 
They do not consummate the marriage. In fact, they do not consummate it until after a third stage. There's a second stage, which is pictured by Matthew 25, that first parable of the ten virgins, where the bridegroom comes for his bride and takes her to the home that he has prepared, where they would have a feast. That's the third stage, the marriage feast. So the parable of the ten virgins, these are the associates or the friends of the bride. And notice in that parable, the bride is not in view. It's the, it doesn't have to do with the bride, but it's taking the same imagery of the Jewish ceremony. This would be about a year after the betrothal, a year of preparation, give or take. And the bridegroom would take the bride and the two of them, along with the party, if you will, the virgins that were prepared, and they would have this marriage feast. And it would be a week-long celebration of this joining together of two people. And it's not clear to me, but perhaps sometime in that week or after the week, the marriage is consummated and they are together forever from there on out. The marriage supper is a picture of the millennial kingdom in some context, and probably this one as well. So it's a celebration. But at least it's an ongoing experience of togetherness between, in this case, the lamb and his bride. And that's pictured in Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Does that make sense? And then we serve with him through that thousand years as well. Sheila? Is that that's the parable that some are with some aren't? Yes. So I'm to figure out how each at that stage. Now those are Jews. I interpret that as Jewish people. Some are going to be prepared for when the bridegroom comes, and some will not be. And those that are not prepared will not be a part of the millennial kingdom. Uh, The issue of salvation, I'm not sure. They may not be saved at all. I think I'm confused because we're Jewish. Yes, I see the Olivet Discourse as Jewish. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. Because the bride's not there. The bride's the bride's not there, and the bridegroom, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Is that parable part of the Old Discourse? Yes. Matthew 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. And if you look at the first verse there, it talks about the kingdom. It's related to the kingdom. We'll come back to that because that's an important passage later on as well. Okay, that's the marriage supper. If you want it on a timeline, here's your seven-year tribulation in two parts, three and a half years, two, three and a half year parts. The rapture is not mentioned in the book of Revelation, but I put it on the chart to give us the time frame. Shortly after the rapture, we, if you want to put it on a chronological time frame, but we go into eternity, if you will, from the perspective of earth, the judgment seat associated with the rapture or shortly after, or sometime in that time frame. The Bible's not clear. Eternity is hard to conceive, so it's hard to nail it down. The marriage supper is when the Lord returns. He comes for his bride, and that's where I would put it, on the side of the millennial kingdom, and perhaps celebrated throughout the thousand years. And again, we are outside of time, so... I think we can come in and out of time. We'll talk about that later. So that's the marriage supper. And then we have the kingdom. This is after the tribulation. We are part of the kingdom. 
This is where we, I think, receive an inheritance. We talked about that, Colossians 1.12. Eric, why don't you start with that one? Mark, look up 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Jim, 2.26-27. These are some of the things that we will do during the kingdom. We'll receive an inheritance, I think, and rewards you can include in that. There's a specific passage that says that we will judge. Interestingly, I think that's part of reigning, but we will judge. And then there's passages that refer to us reigning with Christ. Now, this is the church. These are promises to the church or church-age believers. And they're expressions of something of what we will do during the kingdom. There's not a whole lot of passages, however. Here's just a few of them. You got Colossians 1.12 there? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. To share in the inheritance. We will share in the millennial kingdom in utilizing, experiencing, receiving these gifts that we looked at. Does that make sense? And it uses the word inheritance in this, this context. But remember, I kind of see that as just one of the words... He could have used rewards or even crowns there. 1 Corinthians 6 is very, very interesting. Mark. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? Okay, let me stop you there. Apparently at Corinth, one of the problems that the church at Corinth was having is believers were going into the secular world and deciding probably in some cases, trivial things. In other words, suing one another. Not unlike what we do today. Lawsuits, and they're taking them out. And what Paul is exhorting, he is exhorting them, most of these things you can resolve internally. You should resolve them internally. In other words, brothers shouldn't take brother to the secular courts. Resolve them within the body of Christ. And he's reprimanding them Don't you have anybody that has any discernment that can make judgments in the body? You should, is the implication. Keep reading. Before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Or, you know that the saints will judge the world. Wow. The saints will judge the world. Interesting. We will have a part in the judgment that Jesus Christ will execute when he comes. And possibly we will be part of the legal system of the millennial kingdom. We will judge the saints. That's probably one of the responsibilities that we will have during the kingdom. Keep reading. Or do you not, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? There he's reprimanding them. In other words, you should be able to make these trivial decisions within the body here. Because eventually... You are going to be given the responsibility on a worldwide basis to make the make huge decisions. Keep reading. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So how much more should you be able to deal with trivial things in the church? We're even going to judge angels. Interesting. Very powerful statement there. We will participate and evaluating angels that we can't even see today. I don't know how that's going to happen, but that's the verse that says that. So that's part of, I think, what we will do. We will be part of the administration of the king in the millennial kingdom, 
And part of our responsibility will be to carry out justice, his righteous justice, amongst possibly Israel, possibly other believers. Who knows? Possibly within a sphere where we have influence today with maybe believers that walk into the kingdom in the culture we live in. Now, we'll be fellows, the church will be fellow believers in resurrected bodies, but there'll be a whole new group of believers in mortal bodies that I think we will have a role to play there. Jim, we will also reign, and here's one of the clearest passages, Revelation 2, 26 and 27. You know, I think it's interesting on these, when you think about these passages you've given us in Revelation 2 and 3, church has been around now for 95 years. Right? Yeah. So they've had time to kind of get off track on one hand, and God, on the other hand, now starts revealing some of the reward for getting back on track. Yes. That's interesting. In, in Revelation. Yeah. By the way, Sheila is going to be a lawyer during the Millennial Kingdom. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Authority over the nations. Now, these are the nations that will enter. We'll talk about them next. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces, and also have received authority from my father. Okay. And notice the specifics in that context. The Messiah will fulfill the Isaiah passage that predicts that. But this context says that we will be a part of what he does. We'll be in his administration, carrying out some of the details of what God intends in that broader perspective of the work of the Messiah. So we will reign, and there's other passages as well. But that's what we will do in the kingdom. We're going to be busy. We're going to, we're going to have ministry. We're going to have responsibilities. And those responsibilities are going to be in proportion to our faithfulness now. So you can include the judgment seat after the rapture. You include the marriage supper. And for a thousand years, we will reign with Christ. And we may come in and out of the millennial kingdom on earth, much like Jesus was able to appear and disappear when he appeared to the disciples before the ascension in the Gospels, the record of the Gospels. That's perhaps the best analogy we could think of as to how that, all that works. Makes sense? And then everything will be consummated. Consummation into eternity. And I see the eternal state as outside of time. And we're going to talk some more about the eternal state. But you can use Revelation 21 and 22 as a description of the eternal state. And just to kind of summarize it. I see three programs that God has instituted and is working to accomplish a broad plan. The primary program is for the nation of Israel. We have the origin there. I put it on a timeline. And if you want to use the outline that we used before, that little middle block there between Israel's origin and K there, that's Israel emerging and becoming a nation ultimately for a kingdom on earth that is the prototype of what God is going to accomplish even future from our time. That little gap is 70-year exile. And then there's a 
restoration or at least a return in preparation for Messiah. Messiah comes. Israel rejects their Messiah, is judged at 70 AD. Jesus predicted that. And now there's a gap. God's not using Israel in terms of what he's accomplishing right now, but he is preserving them. And we've seen in 1948 a return and a partial restoration. We've talked about that about Israel. And that is for another preparation for a coming of Messiah, a second coming of Messiah. And when Messiah comes, he'll establish a kingdom. So that's the program for Israel, and Israel will enter into the kingdom as well. There's another program that we just completed, the program of the church. And it overlaps a little bit of what God is doing with Israel, but part of it is on earth until the rapture, and then after that, God will deal with Israel again, and the church will be in a heavenly state. Maybe I had to distinguish that on the slide there, but I just put it as one continuous. And then we enter into the eternal state as well. Make sense? Eric. So you've got Jews who make, make up the church today. We're, we're going to enter in as the church. I think they will have a double privilege. Mm-hmm. I think they have all of the benefits of the church, and they have all of the covenants and promises of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a kind of a unique, special group of people. I like to hear you say that, too, because I wrote a paper by Israel that said that same thing. Great. It wasn't well accepted. <laughs> it wasn't accepted. <laughs> it wasn't well accepted. But I thought the same thing. I mean, yeah. Jews now who are part of the church... They've got a double yeah. type of a blessing. I think so. So where do we put the Gentiles who go into the tribulation? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's a third program, exactly. And I didn't even pay him to say that either. <laughs> Very good, Eric. Let's take a break at this point, and we'll come back and 